The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Ben Levison, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn about the outlook for healthcare stocks, COVID treatments, and vaccines. My guest is Josh Nathan Cases, Barron's Healthcare Reporter. Welcome, Josh. Glad to have you back on Barron's Live. Great to be here. Good to talk to you. So as, as we've been, as has been the case in our previous calls, COVID-19 remains largely under control. But to borrow from Game of Thrones, winter is coming. Can you update us on the current situation? Yeah, look, I mean, there's, there's, I think, some very good news and some potentially worrying news. I mean, hospitalizations are down 4% over the last couple of weeks. And we're averaging in the U.S. about 26,000 hospitalizations at any one time, which is the lowest level since May. So that's that's pretty good. Um, ICU levels are uh, the number of people in ICU levels is relatively low um, compared to where we've been at other times in the pandemic. Deaths are still in the 400 people per day range. It's around 382, um, which is, you know, a, a shocking number each time we say it. But uh, again, is is lower than it's been at many other times in the course of this pandemic. So so most of that sounds pretty good. Um, what's the bad news? Well, look, I'm not sure we're at bad yet, but I think, you know, people are getting concerned about about late fall and, and, and winter. And what's going on is that both, you know, the, the virus continues to, to change quite quickly and uptake of the, the new boosters in the U.S. is, I think, lower than many public health experts would like. I think the latest data from the CDC is that 14.8 million people in the U.S. have gotten these updated Moderna or Pfizer bivalent boosters. These are the new boosters that combine the original vaccine with an updated version of the vaccine. Um, that's that's about 7% of the people over 12 who are fully vaccinated, which is, I think, a lower than many expected proportion of the population eligible for this. Um, I mean, I just got mine uh, last weekend. My daughter did too. And, you know, I had no wait time. I just walked in, filled out a form and boom. Um, so why so few? I mean, look, there's a number of things going on, right? There, there are reasons why people may have waited. Maybe people had um, COVID recently and, and were advised to wait a number of months. Maybe people had gotten their second booster who had been eligible for that second booster recently and had to wait. Um, but look, I think the, the broader picture here is that, you know, as we've talked about many times, there's a lot of vac vaccine hesitancy in this country, particularly around COVID. I mean, I'm speculating here as to why why the numbers yeah. are low, but I, I think that's that that I think is, is probably a big piece of it. And then the other piece of it is just that the, you know, the, the, the pandemic, as we know, has faded from people's consciousness. Cases are lower. Um, it's not a big part of everybody's everyday lives. Um, people aren't seeing folks masking. It's not top of the news. Um, and, you know, it's just maybe one of those preventative care things that like so many other preventative care things in this country just sort of fall by the wayside. Um, so what, what's this about the virus changing? Well, so look, I mean, as people will recall, um, we've been through lots of waves of this pandemic caused by different versions of the virus. And the story now is that, the, you know, Omicron, which has been um, an issue since this year, last year around this time, 
um, has has now spawned just tons of subvariants. Um, so, you know, for a long time, the subvariant we refer to as BA5 had been pretty dominant in the U.S., and that's good. Uh, well, I mean, that's relatively good because it's a really good match for these updated boosters. It, BA, BA5 is still um, now 68% of cases, according to the CDC, but um, that, that number is dropping, and a number of other variants are coming in to push it out. So there's one called BA4.6. Um, there's one called BQ.1 and BQ.1.1. Those two closely related variants, Dr. Fauci flagged on Friday as particularly cons as particular concerns. I think that it's, I mean, others may disagree with me, but it just seems to me as someone who's trying to grasp this, that it's less useful to think about individual variants um, and, you know, which one's going to be the big problem for, at least as a layperson, but but rather to, to, to understand that, that the virus evolution has not stopped. Um, you know, we're not getting new greek letters um but we are seeing a huge amount of change within the omicron lineages and um that can create problems you know i think that the headline problem here is going to be and the sort of the easiest the, the most obvious problem is for these um antibody treatments which are still uh very important particularly for immunocompromised people who might not respond well to, to the vaccines there are some that are available as um prophylactic you know, preventative uh, measures to keep you from getting sick uh, and those will, uh, I think there's concerns that, that those will work less well as, as new variants continue to pop up. And I think there's an overall concern um, about the vaccines, you know, working less well against some of these variants. I'm not going to go into, uh, I'm not sure how much we know about each one, but th that's the broad worry. So that, that's the general picture that there's lots of these variants out there. They're all, most of them are Omicron descendants, and um, it's just a much more fractured uh, picture than what we were dealing with over the summer and you know earlier this year and this is all happening as it gets colder yeah and you know i mean there's cases up in certain parts of northern europe where it's gotten colder i think cases are up 65 percent over the last two weeks in germany um so you know i think as we say every time and and people you know public health officials have been warning for many months i think there's concerns of uh increase in cases in the fall and winter in the u.s i, mean, I think and no one can say which variant's going to cause it or how bad it might be, or even if it's certainly going to happen. But um, that's, I think, what's driving the the push, as we've said, for um, for people to get these boosters. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for that, Josh. So let's turn now to earnings season, which is uh, kicking into gear. Um, what big themes are you seeing so far? You know, what, one of the big questions that's always come up when we look at, um, when we think about the, the pandemic impact on healthcare companies is um, uh, the procedure volumes. You know, I, the, the story early in the pandemic was that uh, hospitals had stopped doing elective procedures, which has, which had, because, you know, they were swamped with COVID cases, um, which had a huge impact, for example, on medical device companies, which, um, you know, th their revenue is based on selling the devices uh, that are used and, and tools that are used in, in these, in these procedures and tracking, you know, the degree to which those procedures come back and go away again um, as COVID cases come and go has been, you know, really important for understanding the health of, you know, particularly med tech, med device companies, but also bigger firms like Johnson & Johnson, which are very involved in that business. So United Health Group uh, reported earnings or late last week, which were generally stronger than expected. Um, now, they, they, they said that their medical cost ratio was 81.6%. Now, medical cost ratio is, is a term that um, different companies call slightly different things, but it's basically how much of the premiums they use on medical care 
Um, it's it's pretty strictly reg highly regulated in you know certain sectors of the insurance industry. But the point is, analysts had expected to be a little higher. Had expected them to spend a little bit more on um, on on patient care, and so I think that raised questions about whether procedure volumes were down. Uh, and did those concerns, I mean, th were those concerns realized when Johnson Johnson, which is a big medical device business, when they released earnings? Well, not really. So Johnson, Johnson Johnson said that um, medical device sales were 6.8 billion for the quarter, slightly above estimates and up 8.1% on what it calls an adjusted operational basis. What that means is a little confusing, but we can just go with it for now. Um, and, you know, I spoke with the Johnson Johnson CFO, um, you know, an hour after they put out earnings. And what he said was very interesting. He said that hospital staffing, which um, became an issue that was throttling procedures after the COVID crunch ease, was becoming less, less as an issue, less of an issue. So this, we heard this, for example, from Medtronic uh, about a year ago, that although beds were not taken up for, by COVID cases anymore, um, there just weren't enough nurses around to do the procedures um, that would be done with their with their tools. Um, you know, we've, we've spoken a lot and heard a lot over the last year or so about the healthcare staffing crisis and particularly the, the problem um, that hospitals are having staffing nurses. There's lots of reasons beyond that, behind that. A lot of people retired after the pandemic or got burnt out. Um, um, anyway, th th there was there's a sense from at least according to Johnson & Johnson that staffing is refortified, uh, that um, the crunch may have eased a little bit, but also that hospitals are figuring out how to do more procedures with fewer people. So if true, I mean, if that really bears out as, as more earnings come up over the course of the next couple of weeks, you know, as we hear from Medtronic and the others, um, uh, that would, um, you know, that could be a sign of an easing of one of those biggest lingering healthcare impacts of the pandemic, or at least lingering Im impacts on the healthcare system of the pandemic. And, and Josh, and we got another company sort of had some good news in this respect this week, right? Yeah, and you, um, Intuitive Surgical uh, reported they, they beat and, and the stock was up something like 8 9% yesterday. Um, uh, this is another uh, device device firm. So, I, you know, I, I think um, there's some optimism here and, and we'll see, you know, when Medtronic and the others report uh, later, later in the next few weeks. Yeah, and Intuitive is, uh, I find so interesting just for their, you know, they do surgical robots um, right. that are they're controlled by the surgeons. Um, pretty interesting stuff. Um, so another big theme recently that you've been on top of has just been companies spinning off their consumer health businesses. Um, and that's something uh, Johnson Johnson plans to do. Um, when you talk to their uh, CFO, uh, what do you tell you about the state of the spinoff? Yeah, so this company that they're going to spin off, they're going to call Kenview. They haven't said exactly what it's going to be, um, you know, an IPO, uh, separation into the, the actual mechanisms will be announced early next year. Um, but, you know, this this is going to be uh, Tylenol, Band-Aid, you know, Neutrogena, all these big consumer health brands that Johnson Johnson has owned for a long time. Um, as you mentioned, th there was another uh, consumer health spinoff um, uh, earlier this year, uh, over the summer, a company called Halion was split out of GlaxoSmithKline. In fact, it, it, was, it had been a joint venture between GlaxoSmithKline and Pfizer. And we, we wrote about that a lot. A tremendous company now they they, they sell um advil uh and, and and a ton of other similar products um and uh you know the, the market reaction hasn't been great uh, for a number of reasons that we went into in a feature a couple of weeks ago um one one overhang is the fact that both pfizer and glaxo have said that they're gonna sell their 
very, very substantial stakes that they, they, they have in this company. So um, I think there's a sense that investors may be waiting until that shakes out before they get into it. Um, anyway, you know, I, I asked the Johnson & Johnson CFO if the relatively lukewarm market reaction or, or reception for Halion, um, you know, gave him any second thoughts or raised any concerns as they're thinking about their, their separation next year. And, you know, I mean, he, he said no. I mean, <laughs> obviously, he's going to well, say no. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but pointed out, you know, I mean, <coughs> excuse me. First of all, that the market, the, the broader market, you know, was, it was a tough situation for Hillian to come into, which is fair enough. And he is saying, you know, hoping that things will be better uh, by the middle of next year, which I guess we're all hoping. I don't, I don't know. Um, but also said that, you know, um, Johnson Johnson won't own a substantial portion, or at least suggested that that, that issue that that Helion is having of, of two of these, you know, of its two former parent companies owning very substantial stakes, you know, being a problem for investors that uh, won't be a problem with Kenview. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, that the, there are a number of big pharma firms that are spinning out various entities over the next year or so. This is one of the most interesting. Um, and I, I think it'll be interesting to watch as it gets closer. I, I know, I'm going to throw something at you. you may not be able to answer. So just tell me you don't know. But are, are we still going to have that cute little Johnson & Johnson label on our Band-Aids and things like that once the <laughs> spinoff happens or uh, I, do you I, I, those plans? I, I did ask them about this a while ago. Don't uh, I, I believe they said they're not changing the branding of, of anything, although I, I got a I, I, this. This is a call a while ago, so I'm, I'm not sure. But you know what? Well, you know, they, so they, they have a, a line of baby care products called Johnson's, and I, I don't mm -hmm. think those will those will change. But you're right. I, you know, I don't know if the, if the little J and J logo. Will it, it seemed like uh, as, as a consumer brand, Johnson Johnson is so so visible. It'll be, you know, switching to, to uh, Ken viewer um, would just be uh, would be odd. I'll yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a it's this this is a sort of earth shaking when they announced this, uh, you know, Johnson Johnson, as everybody else had been spinning off assets for years. Johnson Johnson had very clearly said, no, you know, we are this integrated combined company with consumer health, you know, innovative biopharma and medical devices or med tech as they as they refer to it now. And um and they 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 change change course and, and it's something that the entire sector has i mean as we wrote about not very long ago in a feature for the magazine uh there's basically going to be no consumer health left within big pharma um once this deal is done and and um you know i think well readers should go back and look at that feature for for the implications yeah, I mean, I'll just say that, you know, I find it interesting with Johnson Johnson because for like Pfizer and Glaxo and, and the others, you know, I think of those as pharma companies first, mm -hmm. but Johnson Johnson's brands, I mean, they're so visible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think of them as a consumer health company first, and I guess that's something they don't want anymore. Exactly. Right. Um, all right. So we talk so much about COVID vaccines that, you know, I sometimes forget that pharmaceutical companies are working on vaccines for all other kinds of illnesses, including something called RSV. First, can you explain what that is? Yeah, this is a very common virus that causes, you know, mild cold-like symptoms in most people. Um, there's no vaccine for it, but there's a lot of interest in, in one because in older adults um, and also in very, very young babies, it actually can cause serious complications, including pneumonia and, and other respiratory um, uh, symptoms. Um, so uh, it's a pretty big target for big pharma right now. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's just a bunch of uh, companies trying to go out there and get this vaccine ready. Yeah, and we should focus, I think, there, there's a few companies working on a vaccine you give to uh, pregnant mothers and um, in order to protect their newborns. Um, but there's more competition in the older adult category. And uh, I mean, a, a partial list of companies developing uh, RSV vaccines for older adults includes Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, Bavarian Nordic, um, which is a smaller company that is now relatively well known for their monkeypox vaccine, um, GlaxoSmithKline, and Pfizer. And it's GlaxoSmithKline and Pfizer that are farthest along. And they're sort of neck and neck in this race to be the first to market, um, or at least, uh, you know, to, to, to grab shares of this market, which is going to be a, a, you know, quite, quite big market, according to analysts within, you know, eight, eight or nine years. And so which one's furthest along? So, right. So they, they, the two, these two companies have been putting out data on their, on these phase three trials um, over the past few months. So Pfizer had some pretty promising data in August. They said their vaccine was 66% effective in, pre in preventing RSV, lower respiratory tract disease with two or more symptoms, and 85% in th with three or more symptoms. Glaxo had other data um, that they put out last week. They said 82.6 effective, uh, sorry, 82.6% effective overall, and 94% effective at severe RSV with two or more symptoms. I know that means nothing to, <laughs> I mean, that's just a, a jumble of numbers. The bottom line is, uh, these are both very good. These both appear to be quite good results. And just looking at the numbers as, you know, someone who doesn't know anything about this, it seems like JSKs might be better than Pfizer. I don't think we can make direct comparisons and, and the reasons go into the case definitions. I mean, they, they're not, they don't exactly line up. Um, it seems from reading analysts who, you know, understand this stuff very well, that the takeaway is the GSK shot looks very good and there's a possibility it could be better, but I, I, I don't think we really know yet. And it's really going to be a determination for, you know, the CDC eventually. Um, so why are so many companies uh, working on a vaccine for this? Well, look, I mean, there, there is no vaccine for RSV. Uh, analysts say it could be a $10 billion a year market. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, it's just one of those big targets out there that seems hittable now. I mean, that is hittable. And uh, a lot of companies want to take a shot. And I think, you know, the question is, I mean, there's a number of questions about this market. One is whether these will this will be a commoditized vaccine where all the products are about the same and the prices are low, or if one of the companies can prove that theirs is better and, and get premium pricing on it. And that's going to be the big, big challenge um, and that'll have a lot of implications. You know, Moderna, for example, is talking about bundling their RSV vaccines. So you'd have, you know, a flu COVID RSV shot eventually. Um, that would be, you know, their effort at, a, at, a, at an advantage. Um, and the other companies have different approaches, but it's really the Glaxo and Pfizer ones that seem to be farthest along and, um, you know, could be going for authorization or approval quite soon. I, as someone who got had to get two shots uh, for um, for COVID and flu, just having a one vaccine, uh, one shot would be wonderful yeah. um, for anything. <laughs> so, uh, sorry. So let's uh, let's move on to Merck. Um, Last year, it made a, a pretty risky acquisition, uh, or at least it seemed that way at the time. But now it seems to be paying uh, paying uh, paying off. Can you explain what happened? Yeah, yeah. So th this is this deal from last year, one of the biggest uh, biotech M&As last year, if not the biggest. Um, Merck bought a company called Acceleron Pharma for $11.5 billion. And they basically wanted this one, I mean, the, the main target was this one drug um, that's a, that Acceleron was developing called 
so Tattercept, which is for a condition called pulmonary arterial hypertension. It's a heart condition. There are drugs on the market for this, um, but the hope was that Tattercept would be better. I think the, you know, the, the, the I think when, when, when we spoke with analysts about this company before the acquisition, they said, look, the, the market is well established. There's not commercial risk here. If the drug works, it's going to be a tremendous seller. Um, the question was just if the drug worked. And, and at the time that Merck bought this company, they only had phase two data on on the drug, um, and uh, and you know despite that, despite not having you know full you know phase three results showing that it works, um, Merck Merck bought it for for a very very large amount of money. And last week it seemed like that bet paid off. Merck put out uh, results, um, well at least a statement, not not a full results, but a statement saying that in the phase three trial, the the drug showed a or there was a clinically meaningful improvement in actually it's the, the test is six minute walk distance. So how far you can walk in six minutes. And that's relevant because this condition, pulmonary arterial hypertension causes shortness of breath and related, related symptoms. So, um, they, they said it, it showed significant improvement, which is, which is good that there was an analyst from Guggenheim who, who said that day that, um, sales of the drug could hit 4 billion a year in 2031, which is, you know, which would be pretty sizable. Do we know what a significant improvement means in this case? They didn't. They didn't say. Um, as far as I, so we have to wait on that data. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, so why is this such a big deal for Merck? Yeah, and that's the important point. I think the big picture here is that Merck is getting ready for you know Keytruda, their top immune oncology drug, to go up patent, and that is expected at the end of the decade. So, um, you know, Merck has been lining up assets to fill that revenue gap. I mean, this is the problem that pharmaceutical companies always have. Uh, you know, the, the nature of discovering a new drug is that you only have a certain number of years to get your revenue out of it in most cases before other people could start making it as well. And you got to imagine that there's going to be about similar competition for Keytruda, you know, when, when, when it goes up at. And so um, I actually, last year when the deal was announced, I, I spoke to the Merck CEO, Robert Davis, who said that, um, you know, that, that this drug, if it worked, could provide a nice earnings and revenue stream at the end of the decade when Keytruda goes up at. And so, you know, he he made a bet last year that this asset would be useful then, and it seems like we're headed in the direction of that being correct. Interesting. Um, we got a, a couple of questions from uh, from our listeners. Um, let me ask you, and they're actually both about COVID. Um, uh, one of them is from Steve. He asks, you know, COVID continues to mutate. Does that mean that needing just one vaccine shot a year is still far away and that we may need two booster shots a year like now uh, in the near future? Um, you know, it's it's pretty hard for me to answer that directly. I, I would just say that um, uh, you got to start sort of wonder what, what you know, how, how much public health authorities are going to be willing to ask for or how for how long public health authorities are going to be willing to ask for people to get two boosters a year. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I think that calculation ends up having to do with how much virus is out there and, and what the statistics are like and the politics of it. So I, I, I don't know, um, but it's a, it's an important question to think about. Um, and then Neil was asking about uh, herd immunity and why ha that hasn't really kicked in the way that maybe uh, some had hoped. Um, um, I, I'm just not not being a scientist. I'd rather not go there. But I, 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 you know, I think it has partially to do with the virus mutating so quickly. But uh, there, there, there are better answers out there that I'm sure one could one could Google. Okay, fair enough. So let's turn to um, a company called Hologic. Um, this was a 
former uh, pandemic. It was a pandemic favorite. Um, why did it catch your attention? Yeah. So, you know, I, I went to speak with the CEO and uh, a couple of weeks ago, and you made this very interesting case. So Hologic is this company before the pandemic was mostly known for their mammography machines, but they also have um, this very advanced uh, device uh, machine, large machine that can uh, run PCR tests. Um, and when the pandemic began, there was a tremendous need all around the world for PCR tests. And the number over the course of the pandemic, the number of PCR tests that, I'm sorry, the number of these machines, which are known as Panthers, that Hologic had placed around the world um, roughly doubled. Um, now, Hologic's model with these machines is sort of the, the razor blade model. So you, you give out more or less the machine itself, and then you charge, uh, you know, you make up your revenue on the, um, on the, the tests, that, the assays, the, the tests that actually, you know, test the samples for, for whatever condition it is. And, and, and their, their argument is that, you know, now that there's more of these Panthers out there, you know, even as COVID um, testing declines, we're going to see an increase in our base business. In this case, they do a lot of um, sexual health testing, um, uh, uh, gonorrhea tests, uh, those sorts of things. And they're, and they're expecting that, are there cases that, you know, now that we have these Panther machines, you know, placed all around the world, um, we're going to have, uh, you know, more people buying those tests after after the pandemic boom has ended. You know, it, the, the stock was sort of a, it was a pandemic era play when it was up like 40% in 2020, you know, not not nearly as much as like Moderna or Teladoc, but um, it seemed, you know, after talking to him and doing some talking with other people, it seems to me like, you know, there's a case here that this could be one of these pandemic era, one of these companies where the, the growth in the pandemic actually fuels um, base business growth down the road. Um, you know, there, there are some, I think, uh, concerns as well. Uh, a big one is that the the map and the mammography machines they make, they they need a lot of chips to make them and they've had a hard time getting them. And that's had a real impact on the mammography business the past quarter or the past year or so. Um, but I think that they are, uh, I mean, you know, I think there's a hope that, that will clear up in the uh, near term. Um, so um, yeah, that's, that's the deal with the logic. Okay. That sounds uh, fascinating. Um, yeah, it's so interesting how so many of these companies uh, are still, and not just in healthcare, just trying to um, figure out what demand is going to look like now that mm -hmm. uh, COVID is passed. And so many of them, um, it, it just may never recover. Um, right. it, it's so interesting. Um, so let, let me throw one last reader question at you before uh, we call it a call. Um, so uh, this question, actually, I don't think I have a name for it. But somebody asked, uh, you know, about IBB and biotech stocks. It's still down 22% this year. It's a touch more than uh, the S&P 500. Um, what do you think that's going to be the catalyst uh, to sort of get biotech going again? Yeah, so, you know, the IBB is the larger cap or mid cap biotech, whereas the XBI is small cap. Uh, uh, both are down quite sharply this year. Um, you know, look, I, I think that part of the answer has to do with the broader market. Um, as we've seen uh, over the summer, you know, biotech performance is often really just about like what the latest, you know, big um, data or news was. I mean, it, it seems like it, it can, the whole sector can move quite sharply on, you know, big M&A or, uh, or a big, um, big piece of uh, company news, uh, the trial turning out positively. So I, I, it's very hard to make predictions about where biotech is going to go. I, I think that, um, you know, if if the broader market improves, that that will lift all boats. Um, but I but I also think that it's really dependent on how the cards flip. Um, 
in any number and, and whether there's more M&A as we get towards the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I've been thinking, I've been watching um, like uh, Gilead Sciences um, for a very long time. Mm. Um, when I when I first started at Barron's, it, it was, uh, and I, I was writing the stocks to watch blog. It was one that, A, there was, everyone loved watching. It was a great performer. It had mm-hmm. the uh, hepatitis C vaccine. Right. And then the, the stock kind of, you know, fell apart around 2016. It hasn't done anything since then. And so I keep watching for these stocks to, to uh, start making a move. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see if there is a catalyst that could do it. Maybe it's just this shift um, that we're seeing in, in Fed policy um, mm. where, you know, smaller companies have a hard time getting funding. And so it makes it easier for big companies to, to scoop them up and uh, get new new technology uh, in the door. But uh, it's a very good question and one I don't have an answer for. I mean, Gilead in particular is, you know, uh, uh, an object lesson in the challenges of the large cap, farm, uh, large cap biotech business model of, yeah, or the, the, the problem, you know, of, of repeating, replicating success, right? They, they had this incredible scientific achievement with the, um, the hepatitis C drug, um, but it's, it's very hard to keep, you know, I mean, there's a particular situation there where they blew through their revenue very quickly. Um, and it's just very, very challenging for these companies to, to repeat those, those sorts of successes. Yeah, no, it really is. Um, so let me throw you one last reader question that has come in and I'm going to mispronounce the name. I think it might be, uh, might be she, um, but the question is, what is the prospect for genetic medicine at this point? Um, well, I mean, it's a, it's a broad category, um, broad area, um, I'm not sure I have like an overall thought, just that there's obviously a lot of capital going there and uh, um, a lot of excitement. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I have a, a sharp response there. Sorry. And it's one that, uh, I mean, it, it does seem to be where a lot of companies are, are, are focusing and it's, it's in some ways it, it solves that, um, if I'm wrong correctly, it kind of solves the, uh, the generic uh, issue because these kind of treatments would be very hard to, to replicate. Uh, um, in a generic form, like, you know, we talked about Keytruda before. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's true. And as, as we spoke about last year with, you know, Novartis the CEO, I think made this point last week rather, uh, or two weeks ago that, uh, that the, you know, the moving into these more complicated, more specialized areas of, um, of, of, uh, of biotech allows them to, you know, maintain their exclusivity longer because even biosimilars um, are unlikely when you get into areas like gene therapy. Um, that doesn't, I'm not sure that would apply across all genetic, genetic right. medicine, but, uh, but yeah. Okay. Um, well, great. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for being here, Josh. And thank you to the audience for tuning in. Please join us again tomorrow for discussion on oil prices as uh, the Biden administration gets set to release more oil from the strategic reserves. Um, and they'll discuss whether consumers can expect lower prices at the gas pump uh, in response to that release. Market Watch reporter Myra Seifong will be discussing that with Tom Closer, the global head of energy analysis at Opus, an energy information and data provider. Thank you again for listening. Stay well and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.